Greetings and welcome to Fresh Text. Fresh Text is a weekly podcast when a pair of pastor scholars study a scripture passage drawn from the Revised Common Lectionary. We hope it will be enjoyable and edifying for all, as well as equipping for pastors or teachers who are working on sermons or lessons in the upcoming weeks. I'm your host, John Drury. I'm Spiritual Formation Coordinator for Indiana Wesleyan University in Marion, Indiana. And our text this week is Hebrews chapter 9, verses 24 through 28. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 24 through 28. And our guest for discussing this passage is none other than David Moffat. David teaches New Testament uh, in Scotland, and he is uh, was trained at uh, Duke with Richard Hayes and has published uh, numerous articles and books on the book of Hebrews and has a unique take on the book of Hebrews that's uh, causing a lot of stir. And I thought he would be a great guest to have on. He and I had a lot of fun talking about this text and exploring its possibilities and some of his unique insights into reading Hebrews in general and this passage in particular. So he was a perfect guest for Hebrews 9, uh, 24 through 28. So make sure to subscribe if you're not already so you never miss an episode. And as you're listening, if you're enjoying the show, hit the share button on your podcast player app of choice to pass this show on to others so they may benefit as well. And lastly, if you'd like to support the show as well as receive some additional content, simply go to patreon.com slash freshtext to become one of our patron saints. Thanks for listening and enjoy this conversation with David. David, would you be willing to read the passage for us? Any translation? Yep. This is the NRSV. For Christ did not enter a sanctuary made by human hands, a mere copy of the true one, but he entered into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself again and again as the high priest enters the holy place year after year with blood that is not his own. For then he would have had to suffer again and again since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the age to remove sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for mortals to die once and after that the judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Well, that's the word of the Lord. Amen. Let's say a word of prayers. Yeah. yeah. Father, thank you for your word, your word made flesh, Jesus Christ, your son, who became a priest for us. And we ask now that as we study these words that have been handed on through the ages, that the spirit that was at work in your son, Jesus, and was at work in this preacher, this writer, would also be at work in us. That David and I and all those listening in would be guided by your spirit to hear the word of God afresh. We ask this all in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. So David, what's, what interests you about this text? I mean, what's, what's popping out at you today? I'm sure you have lots yeah. of things to say, but what, what's grabbing your attention today first? I think one of the things that most jumps out to me in this passage is this idea that Jesus has entered a sanctuary in the heavens and that he's entered there to appear in the presence of God for us. This is for us language. There's I think a lot going on there. Some people will argue that Hebrews doesn't have much to say at all about Jesus' resurrection. For my own part, I've argued that that's not a right reading of the text, that Jesus' bodily resurrection is actually one of the fundamental elements of confession that the author accepts and expects his readers to accept. If that's right, then what's so fascinating about this idea of Jesus entering the heavens and entering a heavenly tabernacle or sanctuary and then appearing before the Father is precisely that this is the ascend, the risen and ascended Jesus as a resurrected human being, actually being physically before the Father, appearing before the Father. Wow. So if that's the case, that would mean 
that we wouldn't take this language as a sort of metaphorical description of what took place in his death, which is a common, not not the only, but a common way of kind of taking this, right? That this... Yeah, that's bang on right. Yeah, that's yeah. right. Yeah. Uh, many, many interpreters will read all of Hebrews, but especially a passage like this in terms of Jesus. Well, okay, here's how it's typically, it's often read in at least some of the commentary literature. When Jesus dies on the cross, he is at that same time entering heaven and presenting something to the Father. His death is often the thing identified by people as, as what he presents to the Father as his sacrifice. And you're absolutely right. That's a way of reading the text which requires it to be metaphorical in the sense that the author doesn't envision Jesus actually ascending or passing through the heavens, as he says in 4, 14 through 16, but rather just means that Jesus is um, spiritually present with the Father. Which makes the appearing language mean something other than what it appears to mean, if you'll forget the bad pun. No, I dig it. And maybe this wasn't intended, maybe it was just to leave it open, but the critique of that reading is even hidden a bit in your comment that he offers something, right? It's kind of like, I mean, I, 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 I assume that at the first layer you were merely implying there's debate about what it is, but I noticed at least the little tone that it was like, the language of the Hebrews is so consistently him offering his blood or his flesh, right? And so that's right. That's right. If you take those as the the if you take those more straightforwardly, you could think of those as his risen ascended flesh, his risen ascended blood, kind of offered as a living as, sacrifice. Yeah, I, that is um, actually what I have argued, and I can say with actual confidence that this is actually a reading that was present in uh, robust ways in patristic texts, where patristic figures, whom one might have expected to be more Platonist at certain weeks, even people like Gorgia, are very clear when they're reading, uh, when they're engaging with parts of Hebrews, at least, that they conceive of Jesus bodily, in some way, entering God's heavenly presence and presenting himself bodily, his blood and his flesh, as offering before the Father. And for what it's worth, that coheres in a remarkable way in terms of certain analogies with what happens in Levitical sacrifice, where the point is not that you kill something per se, but the point is that you bring blood and flesh to an altar, and by bringing it to the altar, you are bringing it into God's presence. So there's a kind of direction to Levitical sacrifice, where it moves from the mundane world into God's presence. And, you know, you find th throughout the Old Testament, the language of sacrifice entering God's house, his temple. And that, I think, for what it's worth, is exactly the sort of uh, direction that Hebrews is reflecting on here. He's not reflecting on the moment when the eternal son became a human being and, as it were, left the presence of the Father to be on earth, that doesn't really make a lot of sense in terms of Jewish sacrifice. Rather, he's reflecting on the moment when the human son, who is always already the eternal son, returns to the presence of the Father by passing through the heavens and then entering this heavenly tabernacle space and presenting himself before the Father, his risen and ascended human self, as an offering, which God accepts, and God invites him to sit at his right hand. Now that, that, that yeah. of course, requires a certain understanding of cosmology or the way that the world is structured, which is radically different from our contemporary ways of understanding that. So that, I think, is where a lot of the rub is for us as modern people. But, but it would be a mistake, in my humble opinion, to imagine that the author of Hebrews thought of the world in the same way we do. Yeah, it may strike a little offense to think of God as located somewhere at a distance yeah. and kind of like, I know I, I remember someone pointing out to me once that we missed the point of the incarnation. If God drawing near in our flesh is merely to reveal that he was always already yeah. here. Right? Like, the point is this is an event. This occurs. Right. This isn't inevitable though. It may be eternally willed. It's still not to be thought of as just kind of obvious. Well, okay, so uh, not to pick a fight, but just for funsies, let's talk to well, me about... I don't want to pick fights with this view, so... I don't, <laughs> I don't have an agenda. I just have a, 
a range of guests and I throw their ideas at each other. But yeah. this is just me taking a word and playing with it. Uh, sure. If our listeners have the text open, they'd see right in verse 24, this language of he didn't enter into a, a temple made with human hand. Yeah. That, that phrase is so interesting. I don't want to import meaning from other parts of the New Testament, but I do, just, I do want to note for our hearers what I'm sure you, of course, already know and have probably some thoughts on is that this phrase occurs in Paul when he talks about circumcision. It, it occurs in the, a variant of it occurs in, the, in Acts, right? Yeah. The talk of temple, it, it shows up, I think, in some of those tri- trial scenes about the, the temple being tore down. So clearly this is some kind of, this seems like a, a somewhat loaded word, though Hebrews might be using it in his own way. Talk to me a little bit about that word and how to make sense of the heavens over against that which was made with hands. I don't know. I just want to, that contrast in verse 24. Yeah. It, it's a, please just stop me if, if I'm getting too technical. I'll try to not get too technical. But you actually, it's actually interesting in the work that I've done at least, and, and I maybe have missed something, but if I've done my homework in a proper way, it's really interesting that you don't tend to find Second Temple Jews or Hellenistic Jews like, say, Philo or Josephus. If any of your listeners are familiar with figures like that, you don't tend to find those individuals talking about heaven as a plural reality. And that's especially interesting because in the Greek translations of Jewish scripture, you know, Septuagint, you do actually get the Hebrew word shemayin, which is a dual or a plural, rendered many times as a Greek plural term. So it's interesting that someone like Philo, who's reading Septuagint, doesn't adopt any of that plural language into his own reflection on heaven. I think that's probably because Philo Uh, especially in his earlier years, is heavily influenced by Platonic thinking. And if there's one thing that the Platonic tradition, Aristotle's actually pretty clear on this. He pokes a lot of fun at anyone who believes in more than one heaven. He can believe in different spheres, regions, as it were, but there's only one heaven. Now, where we find Jews talking about multiple is actually in texts that are more heavily influenced by Jewish apocalyptic. And you actually find this right through the New Testament. Apocalyptic Jews like Paul and First Thessalonians can refer to heaven in the plural and heaven in the singular and seem to refer to the same reality. But what you seem to get in these apocalyptic accounts of people who are able to ascend through heaven is precisely that they ascend through multiple heavens, plural. So they actually seem to have a cosmology that takes that very seriously. Now, at the top of these multiple heavens for some of these cosmologies is a heavenly temple. And Hebrews doesn't use the language of heavenly temple. It consistently refers to a heavenly tabernacle, which is almost certainly related to the fact that Hebrews is so interested in the Pentateuch's account of Israel's history. But there's the tradition about Moses Uh, When he ascends Mount Sinai and he's shown the pattern of the tabernacle so that he can build it on earth, there's a tradition that's fairly well represented that what he saw was not just sort of blueprints, but he actually saw the heavenly tabernacle structure and that angels are the priests who serve God in that structure. And when he came down the mountain, he was able to build the tabernacle on earth as a kind of model of the heavenly one which predates and precedes the earthly one and then set up the, the earthly priesthood and the earthly sacrifice. So in that, if, if that's the sort of understanding of reality that Hebrews is working with, then it would make very good sense for him to refer to a tabernacle that was not made by hands precisely because it's the tabernacle that God made. It exists in some fashion. It's not as if apocalyptic Jews thought of this as physical in the same way as earthly realities. But, but it does actually exist as some kind of space. And because Moses saw it, he was able to build a tabernacle with hands, a human-made tabernacle on earth, that is a model, a copy of what he saw in heaven in some fashion. So it seems to me that that is a useful way of reflecting on what Hebrews is doing here, but it requires not assuming that Hebrews is most heavily influenced by sort of Platonist ideas and dualism between material and spiritual. The way Hebrews is many times. Oh yeah, that's so good. And that's helpful because 
So what I'm hearing you say is it might be misleading if we're going to import a certain kind of spiritual, physical dualism, as it were. It's, it's easy for even me to hear this word in, in verse 24, Cairo poeta, as when it's, it's one word, you know, handmade, right? To hear the emphasis yeah. on the made part, to think of, oh, well, heaven is, is this code word for God's infinite spaceless. Right. 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 Yeah. Which then actually coheres really nicely with the thought that at the moment of Christ's death, something is happening in the spiritual realm. Yeah. But if you hear the emphasis on the Kai, (laughs) the Cairo, the handmade, it's this, and those hands is referring to the, I forget their names, but some of them are even mentioned there in Exodus. The, yes, the, right, the, of course. Yeah. These, these artisans that constructed, which is, of course, playing off of, of course, the problem with Aaron and Aaron and others hand making this golden calf as this kind of yeah. contrast case of, of an unholy use of hand making for worship. And then you have this holy act of hand making in the tabernacle. It implies this kind of, maybe we could think of that heavenly tabernacle. This is one way to read Exodus and Leviticus that maybe Hebrews is tapping into is, well, this isn't made by hands, but it's still yep. made. It's, a, it's, That's right. it's this divine creation at the kind of top of the, the cosmic food chain. It's still part of creation, right? In the, be, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, heavens and the earth exactly. which makes the heavens part of the created order rather than as code for the spacelessness that God inhabits in a kind of classical theist kind of way or whatever. So that that's helpful playing those off each other. And it helps me. Yeah, I, I actually think that's, that's, that's precisely right. Yeah. Now th- that's not to imagine that apocalyptic Jews thought that God was somehow confined to his creation. They didn't, but they did have very specific ways. Some of them, at least of thinking about particular locations where God was more present in a certain way. And of course those special spaces were the Holy of Holies on earth, which is why only the high priest can go in there because you're entering God's presence. And that's also why God is dwelling among his people once the tabernacle is set up or the temple is there and God's presence is with his people and the Holy of Holies in heaven. These two places were the spaces where God was most located within creation which is not the same thing as saying that God is limited to his creation. And yeah, those, those ideas don't actually require each other, though they seem to at yeah. first yeah, glance. That's right. Yeah, they, they only seem to because, again, importing a certain kind of Cartesian dualism. I don't, even, I, don't, I, I don't even think Plato and the early Platonists obey the dualism that the textbooks impute to them as much. As, <laughs> there's a certain kind of modern, because it's actually rooted in a modern scientific materialism that then has to construct the, the spiritual realm as, utterly immaterial yeah, in a way that, 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 so, but I, I bring that up only to say that there's a kind of, there's a Lutheran idea. I'm going to bring, not to hang out there too long, but there's an old Lutheran idea that of course God is omnipresent. God is everywhere, but you don't want to deal with that God. That's, that's the, you know, that, that's just the naked God of creation and absolute sovereignty. Now, this is a different idea. I don't want to import this into Hebrews, but he did inhabit a kind of late medieval apocalyptic that helps him bump into ideas mm. that might resonate. Yeah, sure. God is everywhere, but you don't want to deal with that God. The God you want to deal with is where God has clothed himself, where God has elected to be present for us. To use your, yeah. that you highlighted at the beginning. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, God is everywhere, but we want to encounter God where God is elected to be for us in the flesh of Christ or in the case yeah, of that's crazy. Yeah. in the, in the yeah. tabernacle. And so you could imagine, again, I don't want to read 16th century Luther into first century Hebrews, but we're always guilty of reading into, let's try to use a weird one that might illuminate something. I wonder if it's like helpful to picture that it's just like God, it, it's the same problem with the Jew Gentile question that was so central, not to maybe Hebrews, but to the era that they're in for Christians that of course, God has dealings with the other nations, but that doesn't mean his election of Israel is not distinct and unique right. and valid. And it doesn't have, right. I bring up the Lutheran thing because it doesn't have to be a matter of quantity. He's more present versus less because maybe it's that, but that's almost irrelevant to it. It's, this is where is he, he is elected to be present for us. You know, th- this is where God has elected yeah. Yeah, our right. God, right? 
So he is the God of Israel wherever else he shows up. To say he's the God of Israel doesn't mean he's absent from the nations. Obviously, he's operating in among them. That's a really helpful analogy. Yeah, I, I think that's really useful. I, I suppose just to push a little bit further on, on some of these ideas, if you consider, for example, 928, which I think actually a lot of interpreters struggle to account for because the idea in 928 looks on the surface of it pretty clear that the goal is not for humanity to join Jesus in heaven ultimately. It's for Jesus to actually return from that space and return to those who are waiting for him. And that's when he's able to bring them their salvation. And I think if Hebrews is really working with this kind of idealist notion of spiritual realities, to my mind, that doesn't make a lot of sense because it would seem like, well, everything is done and dusted. And the goal is just to go join Jesus where he's gone. But in fact, 928 suggests that you're waiting, that everything is not yet finished in terms of salvation and that you're waiting for Jesus to return. And that actually looks like very much the high priest model, where the high priest on the Day of Atonement in Leviticus 16 goes into the Holy of Holies, he leaves the people behind, he performs his ministry there, which is making atonement for the people. And when he's done with his ministry there, where John was certainly would have been thought of as including intercession on behalf of the people. When he's done with that, then he leaves that space and returns to his people and gives them the blessing. Now, it's more complex than that in Leviticus 16, but that basic pattern, it seems to me, is what Hebrews is working with here in 924-28, which suggests, again, something very different from a notion of heaven as the final place where everyone is aiming to go precisely by leaving this material realm. If that's the case, it's very hard of it. Yeah, no, that's a, that's definitely a potential confirmation about this. Yeah, that the, the purpose and function of his final return comes out more clearly. Yeah, and that's where salvation is. That's what you're saying. Yeah. Yeah. So, so Hebrews works, many people think that Hebrews works with a, a sort of fully realized eschatology, as it were. But I don't think that's right. I think Hebrews is working with uh, an eschatology, which there's still something to be done. Yeah, because, I mean, there's already, of course, you know, in the next chapter, we'll hear him talk about encouraging one another, all the more as you see the day exactly. near. So this, and this is, this is another one of these instances of, course this came out earlier in chapter five with the milk and the going on where it's like and this then the the solid meat it's like the author of hebrews seems to be aware of a whole lot of teaching that yes. precedes him that he can make reference to and assume without developing yeah. now we of course always have to be careful as modern interpreters christian interpreters orthodox interpreters to not conveniently read in the doctrines we want to make sure are there oh well he just assumed it right but which i'm sure is the one of the possible pushback since the word resurrection barely appears in the in <laughs> Hebrews. Uh, so I, I'm sure you'd grant that, but uh, I mean, it does, it does. Places. Yeah. Let's maybe talk about that after a break, sure. but, but, uh, but here clearly is multiple clear references of something still to come. And I like how you pointed out something I've never noticed till today in 28, that this contrast with dealing with sin yes. is saving. And especially yeah. in our modern evangelical Protestant kinds of settings or in, or even in a less evangelical, but still reformed or Protestant or Luther, it's really common for us to talk about salvation as dealing with sin, mm, right? This, there's a, it's like, yeah, from the reductive idea that it's just a moral category. What is it's from, uh, I'm forgetting the author now, all of a sudden he was mentor to Richard Foster wrote divine conspiracy, Dallas Willard. He has this great oh, yeah. line in the opening chapter. Gospels of sin management. Uh, and, and with that, he's critiquing both a kind of moralism that's just trying to sin a little less, as well as a kind of atonement-centric language where it's just getting forgiveness, right? Yeah. Either yeah. forgiveness or moral improvement are both really just sin management. Yes. <laughs> and I love that insight. And here he's saying, well, yeah, there is a sin management element, but that's been done and taken care of once for all and perpetually before the Father so that we can draw near in prayer and confidence. But he's coming a second time to save those who eagerly await him. That's really good. Let me, let me ask about appear, and then maybe we'll take a quick break. I noticed that there's two different verbs 
for appear, one in verse 26 and one in 28. They get translated appeared in most translations. But in 26, not 26, excuse me, 24, it says, yeah. now he is emphanistheni. Face of God, if, if you go with yeah, the Yeah, which would fit the the Septuagint and then the Hebrew behind it, that that's how yeah. you speak of the presence of God is the face. Whereas in 28, it's Christ appearing. It's the same subject. It's Christ again. But now it's uh, ophthesetai. Now, maybe those are related, but I don't, I mean, I don't know Greek well enough, but me. The emphanistheni seems to maybe have a different sense because this appearing the second time could be confusing if if we just talked about him appearing. When I first read it in English, I was like, this is confusing. He's appearing to God and then he's going to appear a second time. Wait a second. Does that mean he's appearing to us or is he appearing to God a second time? It didn't make sense to me. But when I saw the different trans, the different verb... I don't know if there's anything there uh, behind those. The, the second one is the more standard word you'd see throughout the New Testament to refer to Christ's final appearing, right? This kind of, it's a more common word. This first one yeah, is less common You're to right. this. Yep. Emphanistheni in 24. I haven't actually done uh, word studies on this in great detail, but, but it is interesting. Uh, I do think the point is that in 24, he is appearing before God. And in 28, he is reappearing to those who, who are waiting for him to return to them. That seems to be the point that the author is making. And you can fit sort of other parts of Hebrews, as it were, into what's going on here. So that, take Hebrews 7.25, for example, that um, Christ is able to save his people completely because he always lives to intercede for them. Uh, what you seem to have in Hebrews 9, 24 through 28 is this idea that Jesus left his people and 4, 14 through 16 speaks of that as passing through the heaven, has entered a heavenly space. Uh, Hebrews calls it a heavenly tabernacle, appears before God, is seated at God's right hand now, is actively interceding on behalf of his people. And then one day in the future for the author, will in some way leave that space and return to appear to his people who are waiting for him to come back. That seems to be what's going on there. And I, I, I like to, just as a side note, I, I often like to ask my students, if you look at Hebrews 7.25, for example, and this idea of Jesus actively interceding in order to save his people completely, and you just ask a question that the author of Hebrews would never allow, but just uh, as a way of thinking through the logic of this, what would happen to to his people if Jesus stopped interceding? If you follow the logic, the logic would appear to say there is no salvation. Again, raises interesting questions about the extent to which perhaps we reduce these ideas in our modern concepts uh, only to say moral categories. Yeah. So if you if you grant this deal with sin salvation distinction, it kind of maps pretty nicely onto seven twenty five where. Mm-hmm. Sin would be dealt with, but the fullness of salvation would be cut off from us right. in some sense. I, I remember my, this is totally unhelpful and yet maybe vaguely relevant. I had a friend say one time, well, the death of Jesus gets us out of hell, but only the resurrection gets us into heaven. Now, obviously there's, <laughs> there's problems with yeah, that, sure, sure, but there's an insight there. There's an insight right. there, right? There's, yeah. an, there's, a, there's a clearing of the conscience to use Hebrews language that's created by his once for all sacrifice. Mm. But then there is that being stirred up into, you know, love and faith and a whole life and a whole transformation of all things that's still to come. You know, that's one of those elementary teachings that he lists when he just rattles them off in chapter five or six, when he mentions resurrection of the dead. Right. So yeah. Hey, let's a speedy word study here and then we'll take a break. We've got Emphanizo. Appears 10 times. This is just a quickie. So 10 times in the New Testament. One is in Matthew when the bodies of dead people show up walking around, which is interesting. There's one in, in, in John 14 when Jesus talks about appearing and manifesting himself. And then in another, there's two in John 14. And then a bunch late in the book of Acts that are all in a kind of almost quasi-legal context of different people presenting 
information or giving notification to various luminaries in the Roman court system that Paul's going through. So I, which those one, two, three, four, five, six references are, I think a little bit actually illuminating because it's, this is the verb for Jesus appearing in the presence of God. And if you think of that as a a space of authority, because the, the language of lordship and authority and the language of sacrifice and tabernacle are all intermingled in Hebrews in a good way. Like, I mean, you know, yeah, it's definitely royal and cultic. Exactly. Because this is his throne room. This is his throne room, the throne of throne of grace or the mercy seat from. That's actually a Jewish idea, right? You get this idea that God is enthroned between the cherubim. He he sits enthroned over the uh, Ark of the Covenant in the Holy of Holies. Yeah. Yeah. And it's interesting. And I, I, I recall that Theodorat in particular deals with this text in Hebrews 9. He's very clear that this language of appearing in 924 is specifically a reference to the physical nature of the ascended Jesus, uh, who is appearing in such a way that he is seen. And you, you almost get this idea that one of the things that distinguishes the ascended Jesus from the angels is that the ascended Jesus is not just a pneuma. He's not just a spirit. He's actually a body as well, which can be seen. Yeah, that's great. Okay, well, let's take a quick break and come back and yeah, explore sure. some sermon starters. We're back. Welcome back to Fresh Text. I'm here with my guest, David Moffat, and we're talking about Hebrews chapter 9, uh, verses 24 through 28. I'll go ahead and I'll read it a second time just so it's fresh in our ears. And so, for the Messiah has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself now to appear or to present before the face of God for us. Mm. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood, not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has, let me check it again, but as it is, he has appeared, yeah. has appeared, perfect tense, once for all, at the end of the ages, to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for a human to die one time, And after that comes the judgment. So the Messiah, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time. Not to deal with sin, but to save those who are waiting eagerly for him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So let's say you got called up at the last minute. People know you're a Hebrew scholar and they're like, hey, we know you're probably a bookworm, but we'd love to hear what you have to say. Come, come preach this Sunday. Uh, we had someone cancel for us and you got two days to prep a sermon. <laughs> That's how I like to pitch it, right? This is our text. We already printed the bulletin. It's already up on the screen. This is, this is the text we're doing. What angle would you take? Obviously you can't educate people on every little nook and cranny of Hebrews. In terms yeah, of no, and I, I, don't, I don't, yeah. I don't think that's the job of preaching. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So that's in the background, but what angle would sure. you take? Where would you focus your energies as yep. a preacher on this text. On this particular text, I think I would want to focus on the fact that the risen and ascended Jesus is now in the presence of the Father for us. And I think that would be a nice way to tie together some of the things that we've been talking about that run through various parts of this particular homily. I mean, it's, it's a bit odd to preach on a sermon. But, uh, you know, if you, if you pick out this piece, I think the point would be you could have a, a line like, Jesus is God's right-hand man, and talk about the way that in the incarnation, precisely in the incarnation, the return of the Son to the Father marks that point where humanity has finally returned to the presence of God fully and in Jesus' own resurrected flesh. And this is significant for us precisely because Jesus is not sitting up there silently twiddling his thumbs 
waiting for history to wrap up. He is actively engaged in interceding for us to use Hebrew's own language or advocating for us to use the language of 1 John 2. Or Paul himself also talks about Jesus at God's right hand interceding. And I think that's actually a tremendous word of encouragement because it means that when we're facing trials, this is almost certainly why Hebrews is first written, we're not left on our own. There's someone who not only knows what it's like to go through trials, but who is present with the Father and is able at God's right hand to speak with the Father and intercede on our behalf. And if one wanted to draw in, say, in a more broadly canonical sense, draw in other texts, there's texts like 1 John 1, 7 through 2, 2, which seems in some ways to tick with a similar logic. And in the case of John, it's clear that it's precisely when you find yourself having fallen down again, having sinned, that you have an advocate with the Father. The Son is with the Father, and he can advocate for you. So that, that can be a great encouragement when the last thing you feel like you want to do is approach the presence of God. And yet these texts, Hebrews, you know, go boldly to that throne of grace, not because of who you are, but pre- precisely because God's right-hand man, our brother, Jesus, is there actively interceding on our behalf. That, that's where I think I personally uh, would want to put the emphasis from this text. Yeah, that's really great. The that for us, God's right-hand man, God hearing what Jesus is saying, how he's praying for us, interceding for that picture. In this series, we keep coming back to it. I mean, we're doing about seven weeks in Hebrews. And if, if one were to preach in the book of Hebrews for, say, close to two months, if people came away with that sense that Christ is now in the present, praying for us. Like that's a really, like that alone is such a powerful image to coming back to. That's at the heart of the high priestly Christology of Hebrews. Yeah. Yeah. So it gets near to the heart, but also gets to that. Well, it gets to the heart of the text and it strikes to the heart, our hearts too, right? It's one one of those. And often that's the case. I mean, now it's just making an aside, but I often find the stuff that peers most deeply into what a text is saying are often at the same time, the most practical, you know, really like it's often because we've only gone halfway in that we think, okay, now there's this big project for me to make that relevant to today. Well, usually not always, but, but often, often I find that that means I actually haven't gone in deep enough yet because if I haven't hit some foundation, some solid rock in there that speaks to me, then I'm just constructing the application rather than that being guided by the spirit speaking afresh from the text. I mean, that's not a hard and fast rule. And, you know, sometimes it's Sunday and you ain't got nothing. And so you got to make it practical. But so let's talk about four who who pair. So sometimes when I think of sermon prep, I'll have like an idea and then that'll actually inspire another round of exegesis, right? Because it's like, okay, I'm zooming in on a particular idea. And I went and just did, a, this is another one of these quickies, but Huper appears about 13 times in Hebrews. But I noticed some things just now on the fly, and you'll have to forgive me for doing a word study while you were talking, but I promise I was listening. That other than two, two or three, there one at the beginning and one or two maybe at the end, most of them are in this on behalf of kind of context. But there's only one, and it's in our text, where it just says, for us. And I think that's important because it, it has this motion to it. This could be, you could build a whole sermon around this, or you could just do it as an aside. But watch how this, this is just so cool. This is Hebrews 2.9, references Jesus, the son, tasting death for everyone, pontos, huper pontos. Okay, so then that's this, wow, okay, everyone. Then chapter five, there's a hoop air and four that doesn't really fit, but it's sharper than a two-edged sword. It's using as a comparative there. Then Hebrews five, it talks about, you know, every priest is ordained for the sake of humans, right? So now we've got humanity. We had everyone. Now we have humanity. Chapter five uh, says that now says for offering sacrifices for sin. Okay. Now we're getting more specific what this four is doing. 
chapter six. Oh, that's the first for us. My bad. Chapter six. He's the forerunner for us who went in, right? So that's our first for us. And 725 switches back to talk about intercession for them. And then 727 is here, or 727 says, not here, but right after that, for his own sins, the, sat, the priest has to offer. And then 97 repeats that idea. He offered for himself. And then 924, in the presence of God for us. And then 10, 12 does four sins. But I mean, I could think of even going through those and organizing them a little bit like, okay, he's for everyone. Okay. He's for humanity. He's for them back there. And then priests were for them, but he's for sins and then for us. Like it, it gets more personal when you turn to the for us. I don't know. Maybe I'm making a mountain out of a molehill, but it doesn't work sequentially through the book, but at least just as a as a quick cross-reference, it kind of fascinates me that this hooper for on behalf of is used in such a variety of ways, at least four different ways in a sacrificial setting there. I don't know if you'd want to do anything with that, but. Well, it's, I think it's, it's very clear that the, the high priestly idea here is precisely that Jesus, Jesus is not just a high priest in his person. It's not like he's just ontologically or in his being a high priest. That That's part of who Jesus is. But the point of the for us here in chapter nine is that Jesus is actively ministering before the father as our high priest. So it's not just that he is a high priest, well, or maybe to put it differently, because he is a high priest, he is acting as a high priest. And I think sometimes, sometimes we can miss this notion that that Jesus is ministering on our behalf in the most sacred space in the cosmos and the whole of creation, the heavenly holy of holies. And we are, by way of contrast, I suppose, implicitly in 928 depicted as uh, the people waiting outside that space for the high priest to come back and say, yes, it's finished. Um, here is salvation. Yeah, now this might be too cute by half, but I'll mention it anyway that I mean, there's a whole sermon just in these prepositions, right? He's gone into yeah, and where he's not gone into and what he is gone into, mm-hmm. right? And he's appearing before the face of God, you know, for us. Mm-hmm. And actually just those three might be enough actually to, to say a lot. Now, yeah, boy, I wouldn't, I, I don't think I'd want to add anything more than that. There's a few other prepositions. And those spatial dynamics hidden in those at least in the first two, yeah. but also implicitly in the third, there's a sense in which we are, like you said, waiting outside where he is for us, meaning he is there in our place to some extent, yeah. doing something that we're not, we're not holy enough to do. We're not authorized to do, nor do we ultimately need to do it because he's done it once for all. So the, the, the need for it has also been removed by his perfect accomplishment of it. So there's something spatial about the whole thing, right? He goes into the heavenly places. He's before the face of God appearing for us, for our sins. Yeah. Ministering on our behalf. Yeah. How do you recommend translating that best? Yeah. On our behalf is probably best or best way to capture. I like the for us, but you know, this is always the question of translation versus, um, commentary right uh, so I, I guess it would just depend on how far you wanted to try and determine the sense for an english speaker and how much you might want to leave it a bit more ambiguous but uh, but yeah i think the point is on our behalf and doing it in such a way that it is an effective ministry it is accomplishing its goal for the for the people uh, for whom jesus is is interceding yeah before the face of god on our behalf i'm just I, now i'm thinking the the poetry of preaching as much as the prose where I'm thinking mm-hmm. what, what captures the rhythm right, right. What inspires for us. I love the simplicity of it. All that he does, he does for us, but on our behalf has a nice ring to it. So some of it's, a, some of that's a poetic judgment for a preacher to make. Yeah. You know, you're going to say it like yeah. 62 times in this sermon. <laughs> so you want to really believe in the, so I guess I was asking, there's, different kinds of translation. There's the actual, like what you're going to read at the beginning and what's the, what's your mantra? What's the, yeah. Yeah. And 
and to camp out on one. Although, like you say, you would have commentary and explore it. But I, I think, again, me for myself personally, I think I would stick with the for us probably for the following reason, because I think it, it presents a, a nice little insight that, again, is sometimes missed. We know that Jesus died for us. That's important. Nice. Okay. New Testament. Because it's familiar. Yeah, it's absolutely true and right. But what can sometimes happen is that we never really move beyond Jesus dying for us. And I think that the for us here would allow for a kind of movement to say, Jesus died for us, but Jesus also rose for us and Jesus ascended for us. And Jesus has appeared before the Father for us as a nice way to kind of tie that together and show that there's a larger idea of who Jesus is and how Jesus ministers and brings about salvation than simply dying for us, as important as that is. He is also now before the Father for us. Yeah, and that captures your distinction about who he is and out of who he is, what he does is all for yeah. us. And and that switch to the present tense, which the text itself emphasizes. I mean, it yeah. has the word now, now to appear, right? So you yeah. cannot get around it. It's yeah. right there in front of us. It's interesting. Even the once for all language in this text seems to apply to the ascended, the ascended Jesus entering the presence of God primarily, which sometimes gets missed. Yeah. So that's at the end of 26, right? But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of ages, to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself, that could be taken as his coming, his life on earth. But given the context of the sacrifice, it seems to be connected to that's right. Death yeah. at the earliest death, and probably later, according to your reading, that I given in this setting, that seems to be the emphasis. Yeah. Yeah, that that's exactly uh, the point that I, I would try to stress. In a sermon, there's not a whole lot you can do, but sure, I think we we do need to reflect on sometimes the overly simplistic ways we use the language of sacrifice as if it just means to kill something, but but it doesn't. And you just try to plug that into Leviticus and you discover very quickly that that won't work. A sacrifice is this whole process, which does include slaughtering an animal, but it's a pro- process that culminates in burning on the altar in which something ascends, smoke, into God's presence and it pleases him. Um, it's giving him this gift. Yeah, and the blood is taken in on on that special day. On the day of entombment, that's exactly. right. Exactly. Yeah. Into yeah. the presence in the most the most strict sense, the presence of yeah, God on there. That's right. That's right. right. Exactly. And then he's trying to say that he, even in the strict sense, it's still not as strict of a sense as there is when it is in his presence in heaven. Yeah. So for us, I, I do like, I, I like your suggestion because for us is familiar. Mm-hmm. I think I was drawn to on our behalf or in our place because they're unfamiliar, but for us, because it's familiar can then help to render the unfamiliar parts accessible to us. So we think of what Christ has done for us, but what is Christ doing for us? Right. So you can, right. play, so you can play with, you move the tense, but keep the for us as the anchor. Right. Yeah. And I liked how you did a little riff on the Apostles' Creed there. And I, I mean, whether the church that our listeners are in say that aloud or not, you may be familiar with the text of the Apostles' Creed. You could almost do the whole thing as a riff. Like, you know, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit for us, born nice. of the Virgin Mary for us, Absolutely. suffered under Pontius Pilate for us, was crucified for us died for us, was buried for us. He descended into the place of the dead for us. He was risen on the third day for us. Yeah. He ascended into heaven for us. And then those slowing down helps you notice the shift in tense now. Yeah. And he is seated present. Right. He is seated at the right hand of God, the father. I love for us. And then boom, to link to verse 28, from whence he will come again to judge the living and the dead for us. That's right. And his yeah. coming back is for us. He doesn't see that. That's exactly right. Yep. Yeah. Man, I liked that. That that's I'm I'm putting that in the sermon someday. So Yeah, I love it. It's great. It's great. And you know, for what it's worth, I happen to think that Hebrews actually traces that very Christological narrative that ends up being expressed so clearly in later creeds. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Hebrews is one of the yeah. 
Yeah, somewhat. And in a kind of funny out of order way, that's kind of fun in its own kind of way, right? It kind of, because it kind of starts with, well, I don't know, maybe you have to walk me through that. That's just fun before we wrap up today. How does that loosely map onto the book? You're right. It, it, it's not a story. It's it's a homily. So you're right. You do have to kind of put different pieces of the homily together. But when you put them together, what you seem to have is this idea of the eternal son of God who becomes a human being, who suffers and dies, who rises again, and then who passes through the heavens and is now interceding for his people as a high priest at God's right hand and 928 is going one day to return to bring in their salvation. So, you know, to borrow language from people like Richard Hayes, there's a narrative substructure, as it were, that holds together the theological reflection that you see scattered throughout the homily. But it's only when you recognize that narrative idea of the whole sweep of the incarnation. I personally think that sometimes people just sort of think Hebrews is all about the crucifixion, but it's it's not. It's about the whole sweep of the incarnation and the way in which it is Jesus, the Son of God, who saves his people ultimately. Yeah, that's great. That's great. So that implies answers to this last question that I'll still pitch to you. Yeah. So not to be too pet peevy about it, but like so I could ask, I'll t- there's two different ways to ask it. Here's the bad way that I won't ask it, but it might stir some thoughts. So sure. as a scholar of Hebrews, you can start thinking, what are some of your pet peeves when you hear preachers preach on Hebrews? And then more positively, the, but let's frame it positively. Like what would be some advice that you would give to people when they preach on the book of Hebrews that would just help them to, to be faithful and fruitful yeah, you know, that's a helpful question. I think my pet peeve is something that you touched on early in our conversation, and that is the tendency to too quickly turn the language of Hebrews into metaphor and to make it mean something that it doesn't actually say. I mean, that's what metaphor does. And of course, metaphors is hugely helpful. We use it all the time. And I'm, I'm not talking about metaphor as a sort of a foundation of language itself. I'm talking about taking the specific um, motifs and themes that Hebrews uses and then just saying, but this isn't really what's going on. That's just language to explain, again, the crucifixion. Uh, that would be my pet peeve. In terms of putting it in a more positive way, whether we want to delve into the cosmology or not, I think just the conversation we've been having about Jesus appearing before the Father for us is a faithful way of preaching through parts of this text that don't aim to explain that away but simply highlight the fact that Hebrews presents Jesus as before the Father interceding for us. And I I don't think actually in a sermon it's necessary uh, to get into what we think is the cosmology behind that. We can simply proclaim that with authority because that is what the text is, is presenting to us. Yeah, that's really great. Thanks so much, David. Well, thanks for giving an hour of your time and Absolutely. your knowledge and insight. And it's been great chatting with you today. So thanks. I'll say, as always, to Todd and Eric for their production work. Can't imagine doing this without them. Thanks to Tom for that theme music that you've donated. Thanks to all our listeners, but especially our patron saints who support the show. If you want to become a supporter of the show, just go to patreon.com slash fresh text and see ways you can support the show and get a little extra content. I have a day job. I don't see a cent of that. That's to go for all the hard work that that production team does behind the scenes. So thanks so much. And as always, we say, have a good preach and a great week. Bye-bye.